Greetings, programs, and welcome back to another episode of the Awesome Friday Movie Podcast. My name is Matthew, and with me, as always, from vacation this week, is Simon. Say hello, Simon. Hello, good afternoon, and welcome. I'm calling you from Harrison Hot Springs, deep in the valleys of wherever we are. What, what valley are we in? We're in Fraser Health. Does that count? It's a, it's a Fraser Valley. It's a Fraser Valley okay. in British Columbia. Fraser Valley. Yeah. And we just went to a lovely town that's either pronounced Agassi or Agassi. I haven't quite worked that out yet. I'm sure you could help me with that one. It is pronounced Agassi. That is Agassi. Spelled, but it is spelled Agassi. So <laughs> you do the math. Okay. Well, uh, whatever it's called, it's thoroughly lovely. It was a lovely... Uh, a porn shop, P-A-W-N, and a great bakery and a lovely produce shop where we have some Okanagan plums that we are eating. So it really, this is the highlight of my family vacation is the food. Because <laughs> I have two small kids and it's a swimming pool vacation. So, and I can't swim. So uh, it's it's been a laugh riot. <laughs> well, you know, to, be fair, to be fair, I think, and maybe this is definitely true of myself and maybe it's true of more people that the older you get, the more the focus of a holiday shifts towards food um, yes. as one of the finer things in life. And also because, you know, as we get older, for better or for worse, I can I can afford to eat better. I don't know about you. Yeah, but. yeah. and the food here, I, I mean, it's all like tourist prices. We've spent a lot of money on food, but it has all been absolutely like fantastic in a really uh, non-pretentious kind of way. Like there's a burger bar here. There is, I don't know if you've been to Harrison, Matt, but there's a burger bar on the corner that looks pretty, not, not run down, just very, very basic. And it does, the burgers they make are like these classic American diner burgers and these beautiful buns and they're full of like beautiful meat and fillings. And there's a pizza place that's amazing and a German restaurant that's fantastic. And we went to a uh, like an English breakfast kind of place this morning that was fantastic so the food here is really good very much enjoyed it well so since simon is joining us from harrison on a cell phone if there are any audio quality (laughs) peaks and valleys that is why please forgive us uh and once again harrison not a sponsor (laughs) (laughs) but but do sponsor us and give us free time in harrison that would be wonderful stay in harrison hot springs for all of your hot springs needs Let's not give it away for free. <laughs> well, well, I mean, I love the history of, of Harrison. There's a lovely bit of history here that you can read, which is basically, uh, stop me if you've heard this before, a sacred place lived in and occupied for thousands of years by the natives. And then white men turned up and took it from them. <laughs> That's pretty much the history. Oh, nice hot spring. think I'll take it. So now we have a hotel and a, an oak tree planted by Clark Gable in 1933. Oh, well, so there you go. I see. I suppose it would be good if we would occasionally acknowledge that we do podcasts from the uh, unceded traditional lands of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squamish nations. So, indeed. Oh, yeah. I'm 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 British. I don't know anything about this colonial stuff that you keep going on about. So, uh, <laughs> exclude me from all this. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Anyway, uh, so this week we are going to be talking about two films as per usual. The first will be the latest edition in the Candyman franchise from director Nia DaCosta and producer Jordan Peele. And the second will be Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings from director Dustin Daniel Cretton. It's the latest entry in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, for better or for worse. We are going to talk no spoilers for Candyman and then no spoilers for Shang-Chi and then we'll probably have to get into some spoiler territory for Shang-Chi so we'll warn you when that happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, where would you like to start with Candyman, Simon, given that you haven't seen it? It's going to be a very short podcast. I'll tell you what I have seen and that's the original Candyman with uh, Virginia Madsen, Veronica yes. Madsen. Virginia, Virginia. Madsen. Yeah. It's, an, it's an interesting movie because I... I, I at that time, Candyman, the original Candyman came out, I was kind of dipping into different horror franchises because I was fascinated by what I liked and what I didn't like. And obviously the sci-fi stuff really stuck. But I really liked Friday the 13th as a series and how it kind of got more stupid as it went on. So I, when I watched the original Candyman, it was when I was sort of looking at these uh, upper-level Friday the 13th movies. And... I don't remember being that scared by Candyman. I watched it all and found it really, really interesting. And 
I had no problem with with blood and and mirrors have never really bothered me apart from the Kiefer Sunderland movie mirrors, which very much bothered me. But um, what I really like about what I've seen in the trailer for this Candyman is how it's kind of taken the mythos of it and applied it to modern like ideas and sensibilities and. I haven't seen this movie, but I've seen the trailer a number of times, and the trailer always looks great. I mean, that's the point of the trailer, that um, the the paper puppets that they've got for the narration and the the shots and the uh, the the sort of the color palette it really stood out to me. But I remember the original being kind of like cheesy and oh. fine, kind of fine, just fine. So, yeah. what do you think? What's your take on that? I mean, the original is from 1992. So, yeah, and it's not exactly a huge budget film. So it is a little on the cheesy side. My first experience with Candyman, it was 1995, because I watched Candyman and its follow-up sequel, Candyman Farewell to the Flesh, back-to-back in the middle of the night by myself. And in 1995, (laughs) I was 14... So they had a formative effect wow. on my, you know, scare level, shall we say. I'm a, I was a horror wuss for a long time, and Candyman is at least partially responsible for that. <laughs> the 2021 Candyman, which again, directed by Nia DaCosta and starring uh, Yaha Abdul-Mateen II uh, and Tayona Paris, among others, does indeed update the mythos. It's difficult to speak about without spoiling some stuff. But it's in many ways, the structure is similar to the original in that it features a young man who's a a painter in this one, whereas Virginia Madsen was a uh, grad student in the original. And he, in exploring his neighborhood that he lives in now, and he lives in a very upscale apartment, the whole Cabrini Green project from the original has been gentrified. And in exploring the neighborhood, he comes across the Candyman story. And from that point, as in the original, uh, as with Virginia Madsen in the original, he develops an obsession with the story, which is sort of egged on by a a local laundromat owner named William, who was around for a Candyman attack in the late 70s. Wait, I got a question. Can I interrupt you here? Yes. So is this the same universe as The Last Candyman? This is a direct sequel to Candyman. Candyman 2. Nope. Well, maybe I don't know. Candyman. Anyway, it's a direct sequel uh, to Candyman. To the right, first one. right, right, right. Uh, I I didn't realize that they were linked. I thought it was a fresh uh, reboot. So, no. does it reference Virginia Madsen's character then, and and the happenings of that first movie? Yes, very much so. There's a whole sec- oh. section in the in the second act where, in the midst of his obsession and investigation, he's starting to paint picture paint images of the neighborhood, and he focuses. He ends up being very again, obsessed with Candyman. And so he creates this whole series of paintings, which we don't really see much of, but we're led to believe they're quite disturbing. In the course of his research into Candyman, he goes to the local university and he actually checks out her original files and reads and reads them, but also there's an audio tape of Virginia Madsen's character, Helen Lyle, like narrating like her notes. So we get a nice vocal cameo from Virginia Madsen. But as the film goes on, Basically, his obsession starts taking him over and Candyman starts showing up in places. There's a couple of really good kills. There's a couple, there's a lot of really interesting imagery to do with like, especially with mirrors. And then Nia DaCosta seems to really understand the camera work that this kind of movie requires. That being said, it's not terribly scary. <laughs> it's, again, it's kind of hard to, to contextualize all this without spoiling parts of it, but... Right. Not being scary is not exactly a complaint when the rest of the film is so good. Uh, Abdul Mateen is, I think, one of our most exciting young actors that are uh, that's out there right now. And so, what is, have I what have I seen him in before? Most recently, he played um, the character that turned out to be Doctor Manhattan in the Watchmen TV series. Oh shit, him! Right, yeah. right, right. And Tayona Paris, who's also a very exciting young actor, uh, she was in WandaVision. She was Monica Rambeau in WandaVision. Okay, right, right. Um, and the guy who, uh, the laundromat owner, whose name is William, his real name is Coleman Domingo. And off the top of my head, 
he's been in stuff um and he has a real like deep gravelly voice and he has a real sort of his character has a real lived in quality that really every time he tells a story of the neighborhood which he does a couple of times through the movie it like really hits home just because of the way that he speaks you can see him in you probably remember him uh, from if beale street could talk or ma rainey's black bottom last year uh he was also in selma he's got a pretty good filmography going on himself right so you um, said the film's not scary is it trying to be scary or is it trying to be creepy like what do you think what was its aim here does it try to be scary and fail or does it just try and be creepy and succeed it's probably the latter i feel like it's the latter it must be the latter there's a lot of scenes where like uh there's there's a a good one right the first time that the main character says Candyman five times into a mirror and and his girlfriend so it's it's Yaha Dulumtine and Teona Paris and he says it five times and she doesn't believe him and she thinks she stopped him but then as the scene continues Candyman's just there in the mirror in the background and it's quite creepy but it's not really scary mm-hmm. um, the and there's many other scenes like that the first really the first real kill involves people being killed with a hook from but that they can't see him but you can see him in the mirrors around them it's just mm-hmm. really it's really well put together it's just not mm. terribly scary you know but again i don't really think that's necessarily a problem with the film uh it's just something to note because the film definitely updates the mythos of the of candy man in really interesting ways and really in the same way that the original I mean, the original didn't skirt around anything, which is what I was about to say. The original is really about like white on black systemic cultural violence. And this takes that to a new and modern place. Right. Right up to the, to, you know, in the last scene of the movie when shit's gone down and the police pick up Teona Paris and there's a dead, uh, there's a dead person and the cops like, yeah, you know, I, I appreciate your testimony. You, you know, he really had. Uh, he really came at our officer, and our officer was forced to discharge his weapon. Right, like which is not what happens. Spoiler alert. You know, um, it's it's. I feel like even that's too much of a spoiler, but it shouldn't be a surprise if you watch the preceding eighty-eight minutes of the film. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, you know what what happens societally is not surprising in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. What is surprising and interesting is the places that it takes the mythos. The Candyman that we see in this film, I don't think it's a spoiler to say, is not Tony Todd. So <laughs> the opening scene of the film takes place in 1977. And it's, it's William, the laundromat owner, as a small ch- a young boy. He's probably 10. Um, and there's a story going around about a local man with a hook for a hand. And not like a bloody stump with a meat hook but like just he has like a prosthetic hand in the 70s mm-hmm. and he gets blamed for putting razor blades into candy at halloween and the police beat him to death in front of william pretty much <laughs> so this is the candy man that we are seeing through most of the film so it's not tony todd and mm-hmm. as the film progresses and i i it basically comes to light that there's not just one Candyman, but I don't really want to say much more about it because it's because I'm basically spoiling the whole thing at this point. <laughs> um, so, where are you? And you don't sound that convinced about how successful any of this was. Like, uh, so, I mean, I'm not not convinced. I'm just trying to find ways to say what I want to say without spoiling any mm-hmm. more than I already have. And oh, that's, that's, and that's yeah. tough. It's, it's yeah. difficult with a film like this because everything that is important about it, like, I don't think it's necessarily su- fully successful in terms of being scary or creepy, but in terms of being a comment on, you know, current American society, very successful. In terms right. of being a well-directed, well-acted piece of cinema, it's incredibly successful. And But, you know, I just, it, it lacked that certain something extra for me that maybe the original had, um, right. but it's still unique 
like it still honors the original, but updates it in a way that feels organic and real and needed. Right, right. And what did your horror aficionado wife make of it? Uh, she thought it was good too. Uh, she actually liked it probably better than I did. Her main comment mm-hmm. was again that it wasn't really scary, but like all of the, mm-hmm. um, all of the stuff to do with society was is is perfect basically. Right, right. I mean, honestly, if I have one major complaint about the film, it's not that it's not scary. It's that there's definitely one scene where a bunch of teens get killed that is completely unnecessary. Like, com- like doesn't serve any purpose and it's only a 90 minute film and that's probably like a four or five minute scene that's incredibly well shot and but doesn't serve any narrative purpose or any character purpose for any main character and could really easily have been excised and something more interesting and and important could have been put in like there's a that one scene feels like you know we need a cool kill scene for the trailer (laughs) so let's put it in the movie and it's not there to show how dangerous Candyman is or to show he's already killed several people at this point oh right so So you don't really need that context anymore no not at all and like Mm -hmm. it's weird because you can see why they put the scene in uh because it does feel sort of emotionally earned at that point in the movie but it's not earned Mm -hmm. by the characters or the narrative right like it serves the audience not the story if that makes sense yeah no totally but from a directorial point of view, this is the, I didn't recognize the director's name. Um, has she done anything that I will like, what I would have seen before? Uh, she only has, I think, one other film to her name. Let's just punch her up really quickly. A few pundits expression. Yeah. Uh, yeah, she has a film she did that won an award at Tribeca 2019 called Little Woods that had Tessa Thompson and Lily James in it that I have not seen. So, but based on Candyman, do you think like she's a really promising like director for the future? Yeah, and based on that, as much as I hate to link, you know, that sort of idea to major productions, I think you know Hollywood does too because she's been signed to direct uh, the Marvels, the next Captain Marvel film. Oh, really? That's oh, that's very cool. Yeah, in which. Tayona Paris will obviously be appearing as Monica Rambeau because she is one of the Marvels. Right. Yeah. That project, total side note, that project's going to be totally interesting because it's going to be a sequel to Captain Marvel the film, as well as WandaVision the series, as well as Ms. Marvel the series. So and it's going to be a lot isn't of it gonna have, It's going to have Ironheart as well, or have I got my, uh, my groupings mixed up? Ironheart is appearing in the next Black Panther movie, I believe. And she's not a Marvel? No, no. The reason, the reason this movie's called The Marvels is because all three of those characters have been called Ms. or Captain Marvel at some point. Ah. Uh, yeah. Anyway. Okay. Anyway, yes, Nia DaCosta, Nia DaCosta is uh, a very promising director. The way she moves the camera through scenes is incredible. Um, mm-hmm. She has a real sense for where the camera needs to be at any given point mm-hmm. in a scene. And she's frequently shooting from low angles that really accentuates mm-hmm. you know the fact that the people at the bottom are at the bottom and some of the people who don't yeah. think they're at the bottom are at the bottom <laughs> it's yeah. um it's really well done it's really well done from a craft point of view right yeah cool as it's not that scary it might sound like something i might watch at some point <laughs> yeah <laughs> and honestly you should watch it just because again uh yaha abdul mateen it too is um He's really good. Like he's really, he's a really compelling presence on screen. Mm-hmm. Really dynamic, really interesting. And there's a one scene in particular where he's basically him and another actor are uh, are mirroring each other, and it's really, really, really well done. <laughs> it's, everything he does, he can convey. He seems to be able to convey a lot just with body language, um, mm-hmm. and in particular with you know his eyes and the way he sort of moves his head and his torso. He seems to be able to convey not only anger, which is what a lot of young younger male actors are really good at, but he seems to be able to con- to convey like uh, vulnerability in particular in a really interesting way. Okay. Um, yeah, I think it's really like he's really good. I'm sure he's going to be a, a massive star at some point, right? Or at least win all the awards. You know, one of the two, <laughs> or both. Why not both? So. Um... What did Candyman get in your letterboxed 
score? What did you give it? I gave it a three out of five. Yeah, if, solid. Uh, if I uh, if I was giving out half stars, it would probably would have got a three and a half. Yeah. Um, but you know, I don't I don't do that. So I, I'm really interested. I'm more interested to see it now. Now I know it's not like I've lost my uh, um, ability to watch really scary or jump scary stuff. Um, so creepy, I really like. I also like, for some reason, I really like movies that have a long time gap before uh, since their predecessor and kind of references them in a in a weird way or in a obtuse way. So I'm really interested to watch this more now. Actually, yeah, that's a there's a. a film writer called matt singer who was the editor of screen crush who coined a term for that he calls them the legacy quill <laughs> uh and it's because there's been so many lately you know whether we're talking about this which is 30 well 29 years later um mm-hmm. or you know tron legacy which was 20 plus years mm-hmm. later uh or creed which was like a 20 years later um it's been blade a real Runner. a real trend yeah blade runner is another one been a real mm-hmm. trend lately of these like long long time later sequels yeah i like it yeah cool okay well i'm now way more interested to watch it so good job oh good well i'm glad <laughs> and uh what a beautiful segue as well from a director of Candyman becoming a marvel director onto the latest marvel film indeed and this is a point in the show where i'm going to stop and just say that Candyman is only playing in theaters right now, and Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings is only playing in theaters right now. And if it's safe to go to the theaters for you, then I recommend you see it in a theater. But if it's not, then don't, because it's just a movie, people. (laughs) It's just a movie. If you're in a place that has a lot of cases, or if you are at high risk, then it's okay to stay home. It's okay to miss them for a little while. Uh, And if you do go... You know, be safe, practice social distancing, wear a mask, make sure you're vaccinated. You know, don't be that guy. Don't be Miles Teller, basically, is what, <laughs> oh, is what I'm saying. What an and, uh, I mean, apart from being an absolute, like, void of personality here, what an asshole as well. If you haven't been watching the news, Miles Teller has single-handedly shut down the entire Godfather whatever the hell that new Godfather movie is meant to be because he refused to take the vaccine and refused to get tested and then got COVID and then brought it to set. And so the whole thing's been shut down. What a prick. Yep. What a selfish asshole. It's weird because like I am hot and cold on Miles Teller. I think I know he's an asshole in person, but I, he's given a couple of performances that I quite like, but that is no excuse, sir. Like you could be the best actor in the world, but if you're giving people a deadly disease, then you're an asshole. Yeah, what a dick. Yeah. Uh, anyway, anyway, let's anyway. talk about I'm more let's... about Sean Chi. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, uh, Shang Chi is the latest film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It features Canada's own Simu Liu as the titular character, alongside Aquafina and uh, Tony Leung and Michelle Yeoh and a number of other people in a world sprawling but somehow quite small and contained uh superhero origin story <laughs> for shang chi the master of kung fu yeah uh, we have differing opinions on this although i think both mostly positive i yes. don't think they're that different i think we're gonna pick it pick at different parts of it but yeah i get the feeling that we we have slightly different approaches to what we think about this yeah so to start us off, the film opens in San Francisco, where Sean <laughs> is living what seems to be a quiet, normal life with his best friend, Katie, who's played by Aquafina. And he they're just living their lives. They're, they're valets at a local hotel. And then one day, when they're on their way to work, they're attacked by ninjas. <laughs> and Sean is able to fend them off. And, everyone, and Katie's like, who the hell are you? And it turns out that he is the son of a thousand-year-old warlord called Wenwu, who is a um, mashup of, well, not a mashup of characters from the Marvel Universe, but he's basically an updated, less racist version of the Mandarin, leader of the Ten Rings organization. And he is long-lived because he wears ten, has these ten rings. They're uh, not really clear if they're mystical artifacts or technological artifacts, but he wears five on each arm. They are actually... Um, 
uh, they're like, uh, I can't remember what they're called now. I looked it up ahead of time, but they're, they're a training ring in real life. You wear them on your arms to give weight. So you're working out with more weight on your arms. Um, and they grant him long life. And the reason Sean is attacked is to get a pendant from him, which was given to him by his deceased mother, which will show the way to a mystical place where there's a magical power, which becomes the MacGuffin. And uh, what else can we even say without spoiling the end of this movie? Is what I'm <laughs> like. From that point, they hop on a plane and go to Macau, and from Macau they go to China, and from China they go to the mystical place. And there's a big battle, and everyone wins in the end. <laughs> this being a Marvel movie, you know, you know, you can imagine the three line of this movie, and you'd be ninety five percent correct. Like there are, there are very few surprises into in the structure of how the story is told. What is surprising, though, is that the first act, apart from having an absolutely searing fight on a bus, which we'll get to later, is really fucking funny. Like, really, really gently funny in a way that other Marvel movies really aren't, especially introductory movies. Like, if you compare this to Captain Marvel, say, there's a lightness to this. In the when we first meet Sean and Katie and see their lives, uh, and they they sort of goof around and they've clearly been friends for years and years. He knows her family so well that he's basically part of their family. And they instead of going to bed before their early shift, they go and sing karaoke and they they just hang around in San Francisco. And honestly, uh, you might come out of this movie wishing that that was the whole movie of just watching these two hang around in San Francisco because that would be a damn good movie. And the the end of that first act where out of nowhere, Sean gets attacked by these, these heavies on the bus and Katie's like, leave him alone. He doesn't know how to fight. And then he fucking like fights. Yeah. <laughs> and what's really, really, really nice up to that point is that the there's nothing like... I, Sorry, you're going to have to help me remember his name. Is it Simu Liu? It's Simu Liu. Simu Liu. Don't so feel I've never too seen, bad. I've never... Don't feel too bad. It's 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 difficult to pronounce uh, Asian names if you're not used to speaking Asian languages, which is why I'm sure I'm butchering it as well. Um, <laughs> but I, I've never seen Kim's Convenience, so I, I've never really <laughs> seen him in action. And he is... He and Aquafina have this incredible chemistry, but also his his body language is really um, like chilled and understated. So there's no kind of precursor to him suddenly fighting. So what's really really nice is that we are in Aquafina's head as she reacts to this fight. This is the first time she's seen him do like anything like this, and he defends himself in this. Uh, incredible fight on the bus it's um it's just wonderful the first act of this movie is absolutely wonderful yeah it's as, it's as, it's as strong of an of an opening as marvel have done maybe ever mm -hmm. um it uh it very much brings you into the world of shang chi's life and his the reasons why he's living alone in san francisco the reasons why as you immediately find out that he ran away from home are revealed through uh, flashbacks throughout the film um, but they all make sense and the life he's established for himself you can tell is one that is sort of despite not being very high profile or even being you know debatably you know successful in the economic term of the word but it's one that is you can tell he's content. He's very happy in this world. And it turns out it's because it's one he chose and one he built for himself rather than being something his father gave to him um, or for, or as would be more likely the case forced on him because <laughs> his father is again, a 1000 year old warlord. Mm -hmm. This film, I wouldn't say is probably is, I mean, all the Marvel films casting is stacked at this point, but Mm -hmm. I mean, Simu Liu, Liu is great. Aquafina is great. Tony Leung is a living legend. Michelle Yeoh is a living legend. Uh, yeah. Benedict Wong is on his way. I can't pronounce her name. I think it's Mengir Zhang. Zhang? I can't pronounce I'm sorry. I'm sorry is, I can't pronounce it. Plays, is that his sister? Plays his sister, and she's really good. Yeah, so, so Tony Leung is one of those actors who, like, if you've seen... If you're familiar with the cinema of Asia, <laughs> and if you're familiar with... Uh, especially like Hong Kong and such, if you're the works of like Wong Kar Wai 
or uh, or anyone from that sort of you know era uh, or region of filmmaking, he's already a legend, right? But he's never really broken big over here in a way that I can remember. And I honestly really hope they let him do whatever he wants over mm-hmm. here now because um, he's an amazing actor and again everyone in this film is good but the scenes where he is speaking to any group of people he has so much more nuance in his performance than literally everyone else one you of can, my yeah you can really tell there's a dinner scene where he's telling a story and you can tell at this point that he's a little bit something's not quite right there but he's so committed to like sorry the actor Tony Leung is very committed to the role and the character is very committed to his belief system at this point. And yeah. it all comes through wonderfully. You could turn the, you could turn the volume off on that scene and still understand what's happening yeah. because he's so good in it. One of my favorite parts of the whole movie is actually how the, one of the, it's very easy to write a villain who's just scenery chewing and just bad because he's bad which is how the original Mandarin was written for Iron Man 3? Yeah, 3. And and obviously that was done for a point as well. But what I really actually loved about this film is that the motivation of this Mandarin um, is grief. And and Tony Leung, like, a, a successful villain is one that can make you kind of see his point. And he's so motivated by the loss of his wife and the anger and resentment towards who, who he thinks towards her people in this mystical village that are perhaps keeping her ho- like hostage after her death. And he does a fantastic job of portraying that hurt and uh, he, if the guilt he feels for giving up the Ten Rings and, and maybe he could have protected her and then reclaiming that power and using it in anger. It's all just done really, really well. That could have been so overblown as a motivation. And um, he he's just, he's very, he can oscillate between extremely vulnerable and hurt and then suddenly snap into this cold, like warrior chieftain, <laughs> like even, even for his own children. And he does it and it, um, without any kind of whiplash it's it's really really believable and that was one of my favorite parts of the movie absolutely uh yeah you know it's the great strength of the film i think that it makes you know once it becomes clear especially who the actual villain of the piece is because i don't think it's i mean if you watch the trailers you can you know they're hiding something and what they're hiding is the same thing they're often hiding which is that the villain in the trailer is not necessarily the villain in the movie Or he's a villain, but not necessarily the villain. But as some motivation, he's not, you know, he's, he's everything he's doing and, or the reasons he's doing it, maybe not everything he's doing, but everything, the reason he's doing everything is entirely understandable. And making a villain like that sympathetic is, I think, a finer line than we maybe think it is. Because uh, it can be so, it can be so determined by the performance uh, right like yeah. so determined by whether or not the actor dials it to 11 or not yeah yeah totally and tony leung is is an actor who very clearly knows very precisely exactly where to dial it to in every given scene and it's mm-hmm. kind of kind of wonderful to watch actually yeah. and you can tell that he's you know kind of making everyone else better around him too <laughs> um that's not it, to say it, that not to say no, that you're right yeah not to say that anyone else is bad because everyone in this film and even like i know that some some of you and this is not me at this point but some of you are kind of over aquafina she's great in this movie she's, i love aquafina she like, she's like the perfect balance of supportive friend and funny and sarcastic and heartfelt and she she walks this tightrope through all these different things the movie needs her to be and comes out perfectly on the other side every time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think she's a you know she is a Golden Globe winner, so I guess there's some precedent for calling her a great actress. But she really is like a much better actress than I think a lot of people give her credit for. If you have sorry, if you have any doubts, you not you, but you the listening public have any doubts about Aquafina, watch The Farewell, uh, which is a, an incredible movie she did a couple of years ago about. Uh, going to say goodbye to her, uh, going to visit her relatives in, in China to say goodbye to her grandma. Yeah, uh, and she is she's incredible in that film. 
Yeah, that's the one she won the Golden Globe for. Oh, oh okay, good. <laughs> right. So that uh, yeah, go watch that. Yeah, she's not she's not the one trick pony that I think you know people set her up to be. Interestingly, although she's a living legend, I might say that Michelle Yeoh's performance was pretty close to being a little bit one note in this, but in a way where mm-hmm. it's exactly what the film asked her to be, though, yeah. right? Like, yeah, it's totally, yeah. she's the uh, the mystical older auntie who, when they finally show up in the third act. She's like, let me show you the ways of your people so you can win the battle. You know? yeah. <laughs> like, it's yeah. uh it's ex- she, it's a little yeah, thin. it's a little thin, but it's also again exactly what the movie's asking her to do, and she does it better than probably anyone else would have. Do you know thin is the perfect adjective if we're to talk about the journey from act one to act three? Like it's by that point, the way you described Michelle Yeoh's like part to play in this story is a perfect kind of summary of how I feel about the way this movie went after the first act because thin would be really, really good way to describe it for me mm-hmm. because the, the uh, we've already talked about act one act two is really soggy in terms of how much there's a lot of exposition in this movie, just a lot. And a lot of it is told in flashbacks, so many flashbacks. And for me, the flashbacks started really like dragging the whole film to a, to a halt to the point where I was starting to wonder whether they could have done one or two, maybe two extended flashbacks earlier on. So we could just get on with the movie from like the end of act two onwards. Yeah, I I get, so I don't a hundred percent agree with what you're saying, but what I will say (laughs) is I understand where you're coming from for sure. Because uh, Daniel, Destin Daniel Cretton is trying to do, to do a uh, sort of the same thing that Ryan Johnson did in the last Jedi and that um, really is a callback to Rashomon in that every time the flashback plays, it adds additional context. And so you get the same flashback two, three, and I think one of them is even four times. And so it does wear a little bit thin, but every time it goes a little bit further, every time you get a little more understanding, but you're right. I think maybe some of them could have been, some of the flashbacks could have been resolved earlier and it's getting pretty we're coming right up to the edge of spoiler territory by me saying this but there's definitely one that you finally get the full context of it right before the big third act battle and it's right before a scene where shang chi makes a declaration and then they go into the battle and because those two things are so close together i don't feel like it doesn't really feel right for lack of a better way to say this right now where like there's no build up to what Shang-Chi declares he's going to do because the buildup to it happens in literally the scene before, as opposed to yeah. like earlier in the film. Yeah. That's less of a complaint for me. It's just, but it is a little bit frustrating that it's so close to being better. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. and again, I think this is a great movie. Uh, I know that you think it's a good movie and I think it's a great one. I think it'd be fair to say. I, 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 I'm somewhere between good and great. Like I, the we'll talk about third act in a little bit, but the um, er, there's so much good stuff in here. I think maybe I'm a little frustrated about how good this movie could have been with a bit of rejigging and a a, a different focus on the third act for me. But the um, in terms of introductory movies for new Marvel characters, I think it wipes the floor with many, many other MCU movies. Oh yeah, for sure. I think it wipes, I think it's their best new character introduction since a minimum since Black Panther, like Mm -hmm. bare minimum since Black Panther, Mm -hmm. Uh, but probably before that. And I think as just a solo superhero film, as a solo and reasonably self-contained superhero film, it wipes Mm -hmm. the floor with a lot of their other movies yeah. like i i think this is definitely this film would end up in my top 10 if i re-rank the films which i'm not gonna do until eternals uh but uh it would probably be in the top 10 it would probably be close to if not in my top five i would say yeah um yeah it's tough i'm not gonna think about that too much until we have a chance to see eternals because i don't want to rank the movies every time there's a movie because that just sounds yeah. exhausting and is eternals this year yeah, it's if it if it stays on the on the calendar, it's it's the last movie, the last Marvel movie of the year. 
I have to say, I watched those uh, a new trailer for Eternals in front of Shang Chi, and there's there's nothing in that trailer that makes me want to go watch that movie because I I mean I have no context because I have no idea who these people are anyway, and you you have much more context than I do. But just yeah, from uh, watching that trailer, uh, that just like CGI fest of a trailer, it's like all the things we're going to talk about Act Three soon. But it's like all the things I don't want to see in a Marvel movie is just all of that at the moment. Yeah, not to go on too too much of a tangent, but I remain hopeful about Eternals for a couple of reasons. One of which is that the cast is stacked, mm-hmm. and two of which is that Chloe Zhao, who recent Oscar winner for Best Director, Chloe Zhao, is directing it. But more importantly, they didn't ask her to write, to direct it. She pitched it to them. And she makes good movies. So mm-hmm. I'm going to remain cautiously optimistic that despite the fact that it's full of CG, that it, there's something there to be considered. I haven't seen Nomadland. Is it, is it stellar in terms of direction? Oh, yeah. And actually, I would even argue she has a film from a couple of years ago called uh, The Rider, which is just a... Just uh, it'll hit you directly in the emotions. It's, right. it's such a, <laughs> such a good movie. Right in the feels. And she has a real naturalistic way of directing. You know, long takes, wide wide focus. It's and really, she she manages to get really good performances out of her actors. And and that's saying something. You know, among Frances McDormand performances, this is one of. Yeah. Francis McDormand's better performances in No Man Land, and that's saying something because she's basically always good, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Anyway, so Eternal is hopefully good. Um, okay. Shang Chi, I mean, top third Marvel film, I would say at least. Top, you know, oh, top third, yeah. Well, maybe we should get in spoiler territory so we can pick apart the latter half of this movie. Yeah. So we're gonna start. We're gonna start talking in a little more specific detail. So if you haven't seen Shang Chi yet and you you know, you want to, and you should want to, to be clear, this is a very good movie and you should definitely see it. Uh, if it's safe to see in a theater, then go do that. If it's not, it'll be okay. Just see it when you can see it. It's a good movie. Uh, in some ways, it's kind of a shame that they forced it into theaters because I feel like if this was a normal year, this movie would be as big as Black Panther uh, mm-hmm. in terms of just representation and capturing the market and capturing a different segment of the fandom in a way that I think should really be celebrated um, mm-hmm. but the circumstances of its release are not ideal so that doesn't feel like it's happening in the same way and I really think it should but to not put a pin on that it's a great movie you should definitely see it we're going to start talking about spoilers now so I'm going to just quickly say if you like what you've heard so far please please do the thing that we've asked you to do before which is to say Give us a subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform. We're on most of them now. Uh, Give us a like, give us a review. And if you'd like to support us in a more direct way, we do have a Patreon at patreon.com slash MC Simpson. That's Mick Simpson. Yes, we do have a Kofi and all that stuff too. If you go to awesomefriday.ca, you can find all of these links and we very much appreciate your listening this week and every week. And we love you. We really do. Yeah. And now's the time to stop your listening and bookmark this episode for later because we are going to start talking in spoilers, spoilers, spoilers in three, two, last warning, and go. I am so fucking over Marvel's obsession with Act 3 CGI Fests. There we go. Let's begin with that (laughs) statement. I am so fucking done with close-up quick shots edited together during massive CGI battles where you can't see what the fuck is going on. And, and on that, on that kind of topic, if you're going to make a movie that honors Hong Kong martial arts movies like this, or Asian martial arts movies like this, then pull the fucking camera back and let us see the work. Let us see the choreography. There's 50% of this movie where they do that and it's electric. There's three shots in particular that are tracking shots that show Shang-Chi going through a place to, to do something that is time sensitive and he beats the shit out of people on the way and all three of those instances are absolutely electric. And then you've got the rest of the time where every shot is about six inches from a person's fist. And the edits are like two or three seconds between 
Um, and in the third act, this really comes um, to a head with two massive dragons fighting each other. The there's a kaiju battle, but your camera is basically on the scales of one or the other dragons. And man, was I frustrated by the end of this film. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So I wasn't as frustrated as you were with the oh. end of this film. And I think the reason for that is that, so the, the first big fight scene, which is the bus fight scene, you're right, is absolutely electric. There's also a scene in the second act when they're in Macau and they're fighting on the outside, the scaffolding on the outside of a, of a high-rise tower that is absolutely electric. And even though the camera on that one is sometimes quite close, that actually lends to the experience of it because the camera also, director Dustin Daniel Cretton, keeps the camera moving in such a way that makes it sort of part of the fight. Um, so it's never too close and it's never too far away, but it's always moving. So you can really get a feel for, I think it actually lends itself to that feel that all the movies where they cut quickly through fights, I think it actually develops that feel for what that's trying to do because the camera's moving and you're following the action in such a way where you can see it all. Whereas opposed to when they go into like a, a scene where they're cutting very quickly from camera angle to camera angle and you kind of lose geography and you kind of lose momentum. Mm -hmm. So that being said, in the third act, there's two major events, and one of which is the showdown between Shang-Chi and his father. And that one is excellent. And yeah. then there's a showdown between two giant dragons and Shang-Chi and a dragon. And that one, every time the camera pulls back and lets you watch what's happening, is incredible. The mm -hmm. CGI and the creature design is top-notch. And every time it pulls in close and shows him like running on a dragon's back, it's way too close and way too fast, and you can't tell what's going on. And it's, and, and, and it's, got... it's, it's not as bad as many other Marvel films, to be fair, but it's really frustrating oh. when it happens because of the parts that are so much better. <laughs> you've, got, you've got two grey-ish dragons fighting against a grey sky over grey water. That's um, not fair. One of them is grey and one of them is <laughs> off-white. <laughs> There's a wonderful, like, it, you could freeze frame it and print it. There's a moment where they kind of swim up against each other and this giant, like, flume of water follows them up and Shang-Chi and his sister are on the head of one of them and the camera does a huge, like, wide, wide, wide angle of these two dragons coming up. And it's incredible. Like, you could print that and frame it as a picture. And then you're back on, like, the following the footsteps of him on the back of one dragon and it cuts and it cuts and honestly at the end of this movie i had no idea what was going on i completely clocked out as i mentioned to you there's one point in the great uh finale the bad dragon is, is killed because shanji manages to throw his 10 rings inside his stomach or something and when he was trying to pull them out I'm like oh the 10 the 10 rings are in the stomach and i have no idea how they got there I have no so, memory of following what the hell's going on here. So to be clear, I don't have that problem. Like I was able to follow that whole sequence. I was able to follow without a problem. Like congratulations. <laughs> but again, I totally get where you're coming from. Like there's so many quick cuts in the scene leading up to that that it's kind of hard to follow. You lose a bit. And it's hard to. It's, it feels a little bit unfair to say you lose geography when he's running on the back of a dragon that's moving and fighting another dragon. But you sort of lose track of where everything is. But then when he th when he shoots the Ten Rings, which at this point he's taking control of, into the mouth of the one from beyond, I think it's called, uh, the giant evil dragon, the camera pulls back and suddenly it gets really interesting again <laughs> because yeah. you can see him, you know, manipulating the rings from where he is and you can see the cgi of the rings inside the, the giant dragon are incredible uh mm -hmm. again the creature design in this is top notch and the the monsters are very scary looking but yeah there's just there's it feels it does feel like this film has a little more director's touch in a lot of the action than some of the other ones do mm -hmm. um but the scenes where it's clearly like we made this CGI before the director looked at it, yeah. or before we maybe even hired him, uh, is a little rough. It's a little rough. It's definitely that, quote, that Marvel problem, you know? Yeah. I, I uh, just don't know. I don't get the obsession, like, with, with close cuts, close quick cuts. I don't know why they are so obsessed with doing it, because it's not effective at all. It's just not a good way to tell a visual story. Especially uh, when you've got lots of things happening on screen and and the choice do you know this is a controversial opinion do you know why i prefer pacific rim 2 to pacific rim 1 because everyone 
everyone fights in blue sky daylight so you can see what the hell is going on like why why have like gray monsters fighting against gray backgrounds i just don't get where the color where the color's gone i don't know why it's important that that has to happen is it because it's serious we need gray skies for serious things it's just so frustrating to me well i can tell you at least in terms of the color of a film uh marvel definitely has a color aesthetic and that color aesthetic ever since uh about about the first Avenger would be the first really bad offender for it, but every single Marvel film looks like their color grade reference color is concrete, which is really frustrating. Yeah. Um, Thor Ragnarok does a pretty good job of getting out of that, mm-hmm. but most yeah. of the rest of them, Black Panther does a pretty good job as well, but most of the rest of them, Civil War and Winter Soldier are probably two of the worst for it in looking just as like they just look, everything looks gray, everything, not just the skies, but everything looks gray, and it's really upsetting. Yeah. yeah. Well, Black Panthers, I mean, I don't excuse the end of Black Panther as well either. What a great movie ruined by a terrible ending where when they fight in the tunnel with the trains and they're kind of that one's, one's orange and one's purple. So you can tell which is which, but you've got gray against gray against gray. And it is just, it's not compelling at all. It's just not interesting to watch at all in any yeah, way. You definitely, definitely in that one you end up with you know, black against black against gray against dark purple. It's a bit much. I will say, though, that with Shang-Chi, as with Black Panther, that for me, at least, the resolution of the big final battle, not in terms of whether they win or not, but just in terms of, like, the themes of the film and the character arcs completing is very satisfying, and I'm able to excuse it more than you, I think, based on that alone. Uh, same mm-hmm. with honestly same with the end of wonder woman the first wonder woman film the last act of which is a huge mess of cgi but the theme pays off so well that i don't care right. it's another good example of that and this is one of those where the themes of acceptance and the theme of family uh which permeates the film which we've done a really bad job of talking about so far because <laughs> we jumped right into this third act discussion but the um all of those themes come together in such a way that even though there's a big CGI, messy CGI battle at the end, I don't really care because all the character arcs are resolved, all the character relationships are resolved. The film feels complete, but still open to me being able to see them all again. And mm-hmm. I, I really appreciated that about this film. So that's, that's, that's I think, why... I, this is again this is i think why i'm able to get past it a little more is that like for me as long as those things resolve well i can forgive almost anything for me a bigger failing would be if it just ended and expected me to watch another film yeah you know? no, that's that's fair i mean it did in terms of story arcs and characters and the the way it ended it in particular where it cuts to They've they found their own Lewis, haven't they? They've they found their own person. Aquafina does a great job of kind of narrating, like summarizing this whole movie in two or three sentences at the end. And it's again when it comes back to them, it's it's really really electric. It's really really good. But I I'm just having a real problem with how they're choosing to tell the third acts of their story. Like yeah. we've we've talked a lot about the first and second acts, like, but the there's a lot in the first, I mean, the first act is fantastic. The second act is really weighed down with how it tells its exposition, which is, is fine. You've, in order to tell that much of a backstory, you've got to choose a way to do it. So I can excuse the, when it's a little bit heavy and a little bit soggy. What I can't excuse is the, the absolute kind of uh, obsession with CGI, like, quick cuts to cgi especially in, a, in what is meant to be a martial arts movie where like, we we need to be able to see what's going on and, and i do like i did like the resolution a lot of all the character arcs in shang chi and, and in fact i don't think there are any characters that didn't have a good satisfying art but uh, oh, i do even, have a problem with how they choose to tell that story yeah i mean even when wu's character uh sorry tony mm-hmm. Leung's character when wu the man the, the ostensibly the villain of the piece gets a I think a really effective resolution. Yeah, you know, a moment he's been motivated by this. Uh, so basically, the story is that he's trying to resurrect his wife. He believes that his wife is being held prisoner behind this massive gate that's guarded by this mystical realm, which is where uh, Shang Chi's mother is from. 
and he gets to there and he starts to take down the gate and Shang-Chi is able to confront him. And in a moment where he, you know, in a, in a lesser film, he would, he gains control of the 10 rings by embracing the teachings of his mother and his aunt. And again, in, in a moment where in a lesser film, he would use that power to then kill his father. He doesn't, he throws the rings down and they have a moment of reconciliation. And then the monster attacks and, when Wu gives up the rings to his son. And there's a moment there where just Tony Leung, there's a close-up on his face as he does it. And it's yeah. one of the most brilliantly acted moments in the whole film. And there's no dialogue. Yeah. Um, he doesn't say a word, does he? His whole resolution is done with pure like reaction. And he, yeah. he's so good at it. He does it so well. Yeah, it's pure reaction to not only being sort of physically defeated by Shang-Chi, but being emotionally disarmed by him as well. Yeah. And it's so effective, um, which again is, I think, why I'm a little less harsh on the third act, because really what you're talking about is contained to just the kaiju fight. The fight and resolution between Shang-Chi and his father is a little bit cutty, but it's mostly told in wides, and it's mostly the only bits of CG are the fact that the Ten Rings are there, because there's just yeah. no way that they can do those practically. To be honest, I, I'm less enamored with the building fight than you are that's when i started being a bit frustrated by the the amount of cuts uh there was actually quite a few moments on the bus fight as well where especially as the bus fight used a lot more wider cuts and passive camera so there was a lot more contrast between what we could see and, and what we couldn't see but the um the i that the the three acts are quite different aren't they, in, in the way that they were told, the way that the story was told in the three acts. And and uh, for me, the, the third one just let down the other two, if you like. Uh, that's fair. I mean, the first act, if we're going to really break that down, the first act is really a really good example of show, don't tell. And the mm -hmm. second act is kind of tell, don't show. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and the third act is just, you know, it's a Marvel film. So it's... yeah. And like I say that like it's a bad thing, like they make very generally very good movies, you know, they mm -hmm. have a very specific focus on how they want to tell a story. And we as a society love that. And I'm, yeah. you know, I'm a Marvel fanboy, so I'm in on it, but mm -hmm. I totally understand everything you're saying. It just mm -hmm. isn't such a problem for me. Mm -hmm. um, and again, this movie, we've focused a lot on Shang-Chi and on Wen Wu on Tony Leung and, and Simu Liu. But like Aquafina's character gets a lovely arc as well, and so does mm -hmm. the sister. And the res and the relationship yeah. between Simuliu and Aquafina is great because like it establishes very early on that they're best friends, and it never even addresses any romantic tension, like in any way, shape, or form. And I think that's to the betterment of the film. Well, until the granny gets there, anyway. Well, I mean, yeah, at one point the. Asian grandmothers like when you're getting married and she's like oh we're just friends um, and then there's the whole relationship between Shang-Chi and his sister which again it, the resolution to that really happens in the middle of the big CGI fight that you didn't like and I'm not too super thrilled with but like mm -hmm. I was really happy that she starts out antagonistic and relatively quickly becomes supportive and joins the quest but at no point does she do the thing that I kind of expected her to do, which is to turn coat and go back to her father. Mm -hmm. Right. Like I fully expected that to happen right? or to, yeah. to her, for her to have like led the father to the, to the place or the final, you know, something like that. It never happened. They just had a nice family moment. They were supportive of each, of each other through the whole thing. And her whole arc is about that. She doesn't feel like she has a place in the world. And the third act gives her one. And yeah. I thought that was great. Yeah. Well, that was good. Um, I, I like that final beat in the credits very much. Yeah, that too. And uh, and even Aquafina's you know solo arc, which is like I'm a you know I'm a drifter. I don't know what I want to do with my life. To finding something, you know, through the final battle, she joins the final battle as an <laughs> archer. But her ultimate resolution is that she finds purpose in life and understands that in order to grow and progress, she needs to you know stick to things basically. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's probably the weakest arc resolution of anyone in the film, but it still works. Like it's not bad. It still works. It's just a little more abrupt than the other ones. <laughs> like it is kind of nice that she, there's a little narration point at the end where she says what we're all thinking. Well, basically she said today after having picked up the skill, like 10 minutes earlier, she uses that skill to save the day. And she's like, yeah, I know. <laughs> 
win, yeah. right? And so I kind of like how that's recognized. Yeah, and I really like that, you know, the in the big final CGI-laden monster battle, it's not just Shang-Chi who saves the day. It's literally every character who we know has yeah. a name at this point. Yeah, um, absolutely. Including, you know, the three... I would say token, but it's not the three main characters from the mystical village, all the members of the quest, all of the bad guy henchmen uh, join forces to fight these things. And every single person gets a hero moment, which is a a lot, really. Like, that's not something most films would do. Not even most Marvel films would do. It did really amuse me that the main, uh, well, one of the main henchmen is apparently called Razor Fist, and we know he's called Razor Fist because at (laughs) one point they steal his car, which is this big, like, SUV, and we know it's his car because it's got Razor Fist written across it in this really, like, disgusting graffiti style, but it just really amused me that that was his car and how upset he was at losing his car. (laughs) I mean, did you also notice that his car had teeth and the tia? up across the grill and that his uh, license plates also said Razor Fist. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. Is he from the comics, by the way? I didn't ask you that on the night. Is that a character from the comics? Yeah, he's a character from the comics. I don't okay. think there's anyone in the film who isn't, except maybe, and now we're getting into the my favorite spoiler of the film, except for Trevor. Because <laughs> so, Trevor, as you may recall, was the Mandarin invented for Iron Man 3, who was later kidnapped by the Ten Rings in the short film All Hail the King, which is now available on Disney Plus, by the way. Uh, so Trevor shows up in this one toward the third act as being a prisoner of the Ten Rings, and Ben Kingsley is still on fire as Trevor. <laughs> I just love how they were going to kill him, but they enjoyed his... He, he panicked and performed part of Macbeth, yeah. and they liked it so much, he now performs every Saturday night for them in their little compound. <laughs> yep. I also loved his like what they're like. What are you doing here? And he's like, well, it turns out I took a part, and uh, the part was just a terrorist. <laughs> but turns out the director was a terrorist, and I was killing people, and uh, <laughs> just <laughs> and now you know. After spending years in this mystical village, he's sober, but he doesn't quite know if he's sane because he has a you know a pet mystical creature that somehow has two bums and four wings but no face, but it still manages <laughs> to be adorable. Um, so yeah, Tre- and Trevor even gets like a moment in the final battle, which yeah. is isn't exactly a hero moment but it's pitch perfect for his character yeah 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 that was well done yeah so i mean overall i think this movie's great uh i you know everything i'm saying is kind of nitpicky really i think in terms of you know big blockbuster event movie making i think this is definitely one of the better examples of the last several years mm-hmm. i think maybe marvel and you know to a lesser extent well, not even a lesser extent, but you know, Marvel and other Disney projects like it, like this one, are really held back a little bit by the need for them all to be a big event. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I, you know, this one should be that and isn't, which is a weird thing to say when they have uh, they've had so many that are, but maybe shouldn't be. <laughs> so. Yeah. No, totally. But no, absolutely. I, you're you're not going to have a bad time watching this movie. You you might feel. It's a little slow in Act Two, especially compared to Act One. You'll feel the the pace in Act Two, but you'll definitely like if you've seen a Marvel movie, you'll know what it, the third act is going to look like, and and how you react to that is going to be completely down to your personal uh, preference for that kind of thing. But in terms of like you compare this to Captain Marvel, which I'm not a big fan of, but uh, uh, even the first Ant-Man, which I really, really like. This is a really, really funny, sparky uh, introductory movie. And I definitely, I knew nothing about this character, which is probably the first Marvel movie where that's happened. Didn't know anything about this character whatsoever. So I had no context going in what, uh, at all. So the the fact that I've come out of this film and I really, really want to see what they do next is testament that it's successful. It's it's hooked me into being invested in that character and all the characters that they gave me, especially that that combo of um, Sean and Katie together is just fantastic. Yeah, it's interesting too. So in in the big in the post credit tease, which involves Wong from Doctor Strange and Infinity War and Endgame, they, you know they're examining the Ten Rings, and he very purposefully brings Katie along as well 
and uh, you know he's showing the Ten Rings, and uh, Bruce Banner's there in a non-hulked form, interestingly, and uh, Captain Marvel's there, and uh, but they very purposely bring Aquafina along, and now I'm kind of concerned that she's going to end up like Lewis from Ant Man, which is to say that she's been invited along to this point, but as soon as there's going to be a big team up, they're probably going to leave her behind, and I kind of don't want that. You know, well, now she's a super dragon killing archer. Maybe she can come along. Yeah, well, you know. At the very least, I would love to see a movie where she and Luis get to talk. <laughs> oh my god, Michael Pena and Aquafina together in anything? Absolutely, I would pay for ninety minutes of that without any hesitation. Yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. So, so yeah, okay. Well, so, I don't. You know, there's a ton of Mar. And just to be clear, I feel I feel like there's a lot of people who are probably want to hear the fact that yes, there's a ton of Marvel minutiae in there, and all of it is garnish, and none of it is required, which is my favorite way that Marvel does uh, mm-hmm. added content to their films. Wong appears, Abomination appears, uh, the you know Trevor appears, and the only and all of it is either garnish or plot relevant in a meaningful way, and mm-hmm. that alone makes it one of the better Marvel movies too. Yeah, yeah. It's got a real like personality, especially like the first half of this film. It is feels really different from anything else they've made before. It's got a real kind of energy and and uh, humor to it that is not characteristic. It, it's a very confident movie, definitely. Yeah, true story. Well, I think Good that go- sounds yes. like a place for us to wind down. Absolutely, go and watch it, or yeah. wait to watch it. Either way, you'll enjoy it. Yeah, I mean, again, if it's safe where you are, then go see it. If not, you know it's going to be on demand before Christmas. So, yeah. In fact, it'll probably be on demand before the end of October if things are going the way they are. Yeah. So, maybe. Uh, yeah. So, you know, once again, we're going to wind down. Thank you so much for listening. Um, this is the point, the second point in this episode where I'm going to ask you to, you know, like, subscribe, review, and support us on Patreon. Do all the things, and you can do all the things from awesomefriday.ca. Uh, next week, I don't know exactly what we're going to be covering, and I find we're, that exciting. I think we're talking about Kate, are we? Maybe next week? Is that next week? Yes. Kate from Netflix and something else. Okay. <laughs> we will find that something else. But I'm very, 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 very excited to watch Kate. So uh, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. So with that, uh, thank you again for listening. My name is Matthew. And I'm Simon. Thank you so much. And we'll see you next week. Bye.